You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on April 27th, 2022. Let's have a listen. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Q&A about business, innovation, and managing life. I, I always learn a bunch from this. People ask me all kinds of things that I haven't thought properly about, and this is my chance to think about them. So let's see what questions have come in here. Okay, there's one from Finn asking, do you take work problems home after work hours? What are your thoughts about a balanced work life? Um, so maybe I'm a weird case, but first of all, I have worked from home for uh, more than 30 years now. Um, so there's not really a question of, of uh, sort of having this transition between I'm in my work mode, I'm in my non-work mode. I think for some people, that's a very useful distinction to make. Uh, not really, uh, not for me, um, partly because I've been fortunate enough to have it be the case that the work I do is something I want to do. And uh, for me, the more time I can work, the better, so to speak. Um, and uh, when it comes to uh, things which are sort of frustrating and, and uh, uh, CEOing tech companies certainly has its frustrations of, um, you know, I was, I was just looking, as a matter of fact, I'd been doing a little bit of sort of personal history research, because I'm writing a thing about the uh, creation of my big book, A New Kind of Science, which was published 20 years ago now, and I started working on it 30 years ago. And so I was reading some of the, uh, I was looking through some of the things that happened in 1991, when I was starting to work on that book. And so I was reading, for example, raw email that I had sent out at that time, uh, particularly internal company email. And it's, it's kind of shocking how similar in many ways what I was writing then to what I write today is. I mean, one satisfying part of the email that I was writing then is it's kind of like it was putting in bricks in this big technological edifice that we've been building with Wolfram Language and so on all these years. And there's a brick that I could see being put in in 1991. And it's now somewhere in the foundations of the cathedral, so to speak. It's something which is still meaningful and useful in what we've built today but uh, it's something we've, we've built on top of, so to speak. But there's also a certain amount of just why hasn't this happened? Uh, you know, why aren't we thinking about this in a, in a, in a clearer way? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that um, were things I was doing in 1991 and I still do them today. And I'm afraid I think it is the, the cross to bear for anybody who runs a company that is really trying to do new things. Um, it's something where if you've got a company, and I, I see this in our company, for example, if you've got a thing that we've done many times before, okay, there's a procedure for that. There's cogs, they turn, and the thing happens. But whenever you've got something new that's going on, sometimes, somewhere, there ends up being leadership and pushing that has to happen because somebody has to have sort of the vision, they have to inject the vision, they have to communicate the vision, um, and that requires a certain amount of, of uh, well, what it comes down to, tenacity, pushiness, because the natural state of any organization, even one like ours, for example, that's been sort of built to innovate, so to speak, is that uh, the innovation will grind to a halt. You have to keep putting energy into it. 
um, to have sort of new things happen. And so I think that's a, an inevitable feature. So that's one of the things that is um, uh, one of the types of thing that um, uh, at some level you might think of as frustrating because it's like you keep on this friction there and you keep on having to push to overcome the friction. And so there's sort of a question of um, uh, how, do you, how do you deal with the fact that there is frustration and there are things that go wrong and, um, and so on. And there are things that go right that you're excited about. And how do you have it be the case you know, on, the other, on the other side, there's something you're really excited about. You could spend the whole day just sort of being excited and not get anything else done. Or you could spend the whole day being frustrated and not get anything else done. So there's a certain amount of, for me at least, there's a certain amount of, uh, of learnt compartmentalization that um, I at least uh, uh, do a decent job, I think, uh, of achieving. And, and part of that story is there's a lot of things going on. So one thing is frustrating, the chances are the next meeting will be about something that actually isn't frustrating. And even though in the first few minutes of that meeting, you're still fuming about the thing you were frustrated about before, Pretty soon, it's it's like um, uh, things things are good. Now, what I tend to do is, if I am coming into a meeting having just come out of something which is very frustrating, I'll just say to people, "I just came out of this incredibly frustrating meeting. Um, if it's if it's not uh, uh, too shocking to do it, I might even say something about what that meeting was about." Um, and then, and then I'll sometimes say, "Okay, somebody here, tell me something good," because. You know, once I hear something good in the next meeting, it's like, oh, that's nice. And then, you know, whatever frustration mood there was kind of um, tends to, at least for me, tends to sort of melt away. But in terms of, of um, kind of the, the uh, uh, do you continue sort of looping on all these kind of um, questions from, quotes work or from one part of your life when you're in another part of your life, uh, you know, I think one of the things that I've certainly made a conscious effort to do is sort of be there in the moment, so to speak, and concentrate on what's actually happening right when it's happening, rather than wandering off to think about other kinds of things. I mean, people who worked with me for years and I'm in some meeting and uh, they, they can tell, they, they're like, you're looking at something else right now. I can tell you're not paying attention. I myself am a pretty bad multitasker. And so... That makes it probably even the more obvious, but also even the more sort of damaging to me if I'm not really paying attention to the thing that I think I'm paying attention to. So I, I tend to, uh, uh, you know, I, I've made a sort of conscious effort to, like, when I'm doing one particular thing, I'm thinking about that thing. I'm not off, you know, mind wandering, thinking about other kinds of things. You know, it's funny, and the science that I've been doing uh, to do with multi computation and to do with all these issues about different threads of history. Um, that uh, operate in the physical universe and that relate to our perception of the physical universe. One of the things that's come up recently is kind of multi-way thinking, so to speak, and to what extent that sort of happens to us or, or doesn't. But this, this would be a, a tremendous distraction to talk about this here, but it's just amusing to me uh, and, and kind of ironic, given that I'm talking about the importance of maintaining a sort of single thread of, of, of thinking about things and not getting distracted, that uh, uh, I could add in the distraction of the this sort of scientific direction of thinking about these sort of multiple threads of, 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 of that being something that's sort of imposed on us by the universe. But as a practical matter, um, it's, uh, uh, you know, part of the issue with, with uh, 
you know, my wife and children and things like that of, of uh, to what extent are they and have they been exposed to the what I do for a living thing? Um, you know, one thing I've always, my, my, I have four kids and three of them are pretty, pretty firmly grown up, so to speak. Um, and uh, the, um, uh, the, it's, um, uh, they have always, you know, uh, I think they were aware from a, from a young age of sort of the things that I do. And, and I would often talk about kind of uh, uh, questions, things, product ideas. Uh, they'd see different things that were going on. They'd often tell me that's a really stupid idea. And sometimes they'd be right and sometimes they wouldn't be right. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I think that uh, I always believe that for children, for example, for kids, um, it's kind of, you're, they're missing out on a lot if they don't know what their parents do, so to speak. Um, and uh, I think um, my kids, I think it would be fair to say, um, uh, uh, they, they might have, in some cases, gotten fed up with hearing about different kinds of things that um, uh, were part of uh, what I do for a living, so to speak. But I think in general, it's something uh, interesting and, um, and helpful, so to speak. And so that kind of, to some extent, uh, sort of remove some of the, oh, uh, you know, you, you, you have to compartmentalize and not, not take the thinking about what you're doing for, for a living, so to speak, um, quotes home with you, so to speak. Um, I think that uh, uh, obviously this works differently for different kinds of people, but, but again, uh, uh, you know, when uh, I tend to be somebody who likes to work as much as I can, I, I basically work in some form or another from when I wake up until I usually take a break for dinner and then I go back to work and I work until, until I go to, go to sleep. Um, and, uh, but by work, I don't know, is, is for example, what I'm doing right now, work. I do this because I find it kind of interesting and it's sort of a hobby in a sense. Uh, I don't think it's, I wouldn't classify it as work. Actually, I'm not sure I would classify a lot of the things that I do as quotes work um, in, in the sense of, you know, perhaps if I was in uh, the, the, because, because I, I do things which I like to do, and I've been, been fortunate enough that I've been able to set things up so that most of what I do is things that I like to do. Let's see. <laughs> D0 asks, what is a, a shocking meeting? No, I, I mean more than, uh, rather what I mean is, if I have some frustrating meeting and, um, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. I, we're debugging some speed issue for, uh, uh, for some piece of Wolfram Alpha. And um, this, this is a this week story. Um, and it's like, there's a sort of pushback along the lines of, oh, why are we fixing this? We're building a whole new software engineering infrastructure for doing that we don't need to fix the thing that is right now hanging out there as a possible issue. Oh, and by the way, um, and, and we don't need to fix that. And I'm like, yes, we do need to fix that because people are using it now and we don't know how long it's gonna be before the new infrastructure is ready. It's certainly gonna be a while. And by the way, what's involved in fixing the now? Oh, well, it's, um, uh, you know, we've tracked it down to this obscure thing that's some, you know, some kind of piece of, uh, uh, some ingress controller of a, of a containerization system interacting badly with some server somewhere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
So it's like, okay, and, and this is I, I mean, this is my style of CEOing is basically, you know, I can kind of tell that people don't quite know what's going on. There's very good people, but they're kind of like, let's just, this is a kind of messy thing. Let's just not worry about that. We're building this great new piece of software engineering that's going to be wonderful when it's ready. But I'm like, actually, we got to look at this other stuff. And so it's, a, it's you know, pull up the documentation. What is the name of this parameter? What is, the, you know, what is it doing? How does it work? What, you know, what packets is it sending from here to there? Blah, 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 blah. But there's a lot of pushback of why are we doing this? You know, we're just wasting a bunch of time talking about all these details. You know, we know we're going to throw away all this stuff in the glorious future, so to speak. Um, and that's that's a case where, you know, my opinion is, and, and I'm, you know, this is kind of, uh, uh, this is sort of what the, the CEOing thing to do, so to speak. You know, we, we can't wait for the glorious future. We have to fix this now. And to fix it now requires actually understanding what's going wrong. And understanding what's going wrong means diving into these details, and uh, it's and, and it requires pushing to make that happen. So that's an example of a uh, you know so, something which in some ways is kind of frustrating uh, discussion. Even though the people involved are very good people, and they they are not they're they're not sort of being stupid. They just are not necessarily seeing what I see as being the overall priorities. So you know you're in a meeting about that, and then the next meeting is about. Gosh, I can't remember what it was. It was uh, something completely different. And um, so the question is, you know, when you come into the next meeting and you're like, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm frustrated. I was in a very frustrating meeting. Um, uh, you know, there's a question of you say why it was frustrating. And, you know, I can't even remember in that case whether I did or didn't. But, but sometimes it's, uh, you know, if the next meeting is with people who will be sort of freaked out by the intensity of the of whatever it is that was was going on in the previous one, then it's kind of responsibility to not bring that intensity. You know, people don't sign up for being you know people in in certain kinds of roles don't sign up for being exposed to certain kinds of intensity. Um, it's it's um, uh, I'm being reminded by my team what the actual next meeting was. Yeah, okay, um, and uh, uh, um, anyway. Let's see. Parmenides asks, "What do you think of Elon buying Twitter?" Well, I think it's I think it's a very interesting thing, and I think that um, uh, uh, you know I, I would say that it's um, uh, it's going to be very interesting, and it's going to be an opportunity to do some uh, some very good things. I think. Um, in fact, I was was um, uh, I had in twenty nineteen. I got kind of involved in thinking about things a little bit related to that. I, I got asked to testify for some Senate committee, U.S. Senate committee, about um, what I referred to as um, automated content selection on the internet. That is, there are you know there are companies like ours where we're doing things like putting out Wolfram Alpha on the web, but Wolfram Alpha is a thing where people you know ask a question and then we're computing the answer. And it's kind of we are doing we are responsible for generating the content that is the answer but many companies uh whether it's google facebook twitter um their main thing is to take other people's content and to deliver it in a ranked way to uh to the user so it's kind of automated selection of content rather than generation of content 
authoring of content, computational generation of content. It's, it's really the main story is the ranking of content. And so the question then is, well, how should you do that? And the issue uh, that was very evident in, in visiting the folks at the Senate, for example, is everybody thinks that, you know, the companies are promoting the other guy, so to speak, and that they're, they're squashing their side, so to speak. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there was a lot, I think, the angst in 2019 was, was fairly high. The angst in subsequent time has gotten even vastly higher about, um, you know, what's going on, who's getting blocked, you know, who's being promoted, who's being demoted, all these kinds of things. And the, the question was that the thing that was sort of on the table there was the question of, well, if we just got these companies to show the code that they're using to do everything they're doing, would that solve the problem? And, you know, my original, I originally sort of got wheeled into the whole thing because people knew that I thought a bit about um, the question of whether, you know, if you see the code, do you know what it's going to do type thing? And that's related to a whole bunch of science that I've done about computational irreducibility, all these kinds of things. And so my original kind of expected role, uh, my expect uh, what I expected was I would talk about computational irreducibility, which is kind of an interesting thing to be talking about in the context of, uh, of sort of uh, legislation type um, type things. I, I think, you know, I happen to believe that computational irreducibility will be an important part of the story of a lot of the way things have to work in the future and an important thing for people to really understand as they try and think through kind of sort of AI and, and what AI means and, and how, we, how we sort of constrain or whatever AI to do what we want it to do. But in any case, I, I, I um, thought I would be talking about kind of well, it isn't going to be enough to just see the code, because even if you see the code, you can't necessarily tell what it's going to do in a particular case. I also kind of saw this whole issue of um, uh, kind of what do the AIs, and it is really AIs, provide to us on these social media and other platforms, these automated content selection systems, what, what do the AIs provide for us, and are they doing what we want? Um, are they, uh, and are they doing, who's determining what they do, and then once there is some specification of what they should do, uh, you know, how does that work and what constraints can one put on it, should one put on it and so on. And the idea of just let's see the code, um, just, uh, uh, you know, is, is sort of a theoretically not sufficient kind of story. And now obviously people kind of put into the code little if statements that say, you know, if it's the guy I don't like, block their whatever it is. And obviously you can find that if you, if you open up the code. Um, but there are much more subtle issues and they're much more complicated things where there's some training data used for machine learning and the training data came from this place and the training data had some sort of pre-existing, training data necessarily has pre-existing information in it because it comes from the world as the world is. And so if the world as the world is, has some prejudice about this or that, then the training data, because it is reflecting the world as the world is, is going to carry the same thing. But then you can argue, well, did it, you know, do you like to have it that way and so on? And, and even sort of how does that flow through the system? So in any case, I, I kind of, the, the idea of just look at the code and it'll all be good clearly wasn't going to work. And so I was started thinking about, well, what is a, what is a, a possible uh, way around this, this problem? Because the other, the other situation you have is that somebody says, well, okay, we're gonna, it's all gonna be this AI and it's just gonna be a pure AI that's gonna decide these feeds and we're going to make the AI. So, so what, does the, what is the objective of the AI? 
it's kind of like what is its what is its life goal not that it's alive but what is its what is its analog of a life goal and you know for a company that's a for-profit company the life goal might be just make more money and so what that means what does that mean that means get people to click on those things more often get people to look at the ads more often get the ads to be more get the content to be such that the ads will be more effective in it now that leads to things you know because of the nature of our species that leads to all kinds of things it probably leads to us being more interested the more shocking the content is um, the more outrageous and out there the content is, possibly the more polarized in different directions the content is, the more it agrees with you, the more that it disagrees with the other person. You know, those are things that, because of the nature of our species, um, tend to be things that, yes, the AI discovers the, the nature of our species and can say, yes, if I put up this incredibly shocking thing as the first thing in this feed, more people are going to click on it. Therefore, that's what I, as the AI, whose goal is to maximize the revenue of the corporation, so to speak, will do. So then people say, but, but you know, that's not what we want. We want somehow the what seemed to be sweetness and light in some way or another. Um, and so then you have to say, well, OK, let's tell the AI, in addition to maximizing revenue, add another constraint, put in sweetness and light. OK, the AI is going to say, if the AI could say anything to us, what the heck do you mean? What do you want? And then you get stuck in this problem of how do you define what it is that you want? How do you say, OK, I want, for, for example, I mean, people might say, you know, cut out all the things that aren't facts. That's kind of an absurd thing to say, um, you know, in the business that I've been in for a long time of delivering computable facts. Um, one, one, you know, one, I could, I could expound at great length about the nature of fact, so to speak, and the kinds of things that can be facts versus the kinds of things that people will say that just don't have that kind of character. Um, maybe it's a separate topic, but, but um, uh, the, um, the thing that one sort of realizes is that this question about what are you going to, what do you, what do you want to tell the AI you want? And you realize there's no right answer to that. There's no, this is the best thing to tell the AI you want. Well, it's best to me, but it might not be best to you. And, you know, people differ in what they want. Uh, people have different kind of cultural uh, uh, kind of values, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so one question is, okay, well, if you're running one of these platforms, one of these systems that is doing automated content selection, you as the company behind that system could say, well, I'm going to pick what, what I think the AI should be, you know, what choices the AI should be making. And those choices might be incredibly specific, you know, ban the guy I don't like, or they might be much vaguer, you know, promote content that has this general character or something. Um, but uh, in any case, you as the, as the company operating that, that service could take the point of view, you're going to be in charge. That's a very difficult position to be in because many of the decisions that have to be made are essentially ethics decisions. And as I was saying, there's no right answer. What's right to one person or group of people will be wrong to another group of people and so on. That's kind of the nature of the world and, and the nature of kind of the diversity of people and their opinions. So, you know, that I think is, is something where you can put yourself in the position of being the one true source of ethics for the world. But if I was running such a business, that wouldn't be a position I would want to be in. It's certainly not a, a profit maximizing position. It's not a quality of life for the CEO maximizing position, I don't think. Um, 
it's a position where yes, if you you know if you'd taken a I don't know political science class somewhere and um, you know you learned a bunch of stuff about this, you get to you know instead of just doing your 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 course exercise, you get to actually press buttons in in one of these systems to actually change, you know, to, to affect what happens in, in this or that, uh, you know, political situation or, or whatever it is. So, uh, but in any case, the, the, the thing that, um, uh, so the, the question is, how do you get out of that box? And so the thing I started thinking about a couple of days before I was, was going to do this, the Senate testimony was, well, what if you just have what you might call a ranking provider? What if you have an entity that says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna decide what the ranking is, but there are many such entities. And as a customer of the service, instead of saying, I'm stuck with whatever company X, the provider of the service of the, of the main platform, whatever that provider says is the, the, the AI I should use, the, the ethics I should use effectively, what if I could just pick between a whole bunch of possible ranking providers? And uh, the one of the points there is that those providers might be things people had never heard of. They might be startups or they might be, you know, brands. And I say brands in a generalized sense because it might be a, you know, a political organization, a church, a university, a whatever. It doesn't have to be, you know, a sneaker maker or something like that. Um, or it could be, a, you know, some influencer or some such other thing. But it's some thing that some entity that to most people stands for something. It stands for family values. It stands for edginess. It stands for whatever it is. Um, and uh, but they, there's some notion of that of that of that um, entity. And then the idea is, can you get that entity to be the one that you can pick to be the one selecting what's in your in your feed? Well, obviously you can't have you know let's say that entity was some media-like company. You can't have a bunch of you know, editors sitting around saying, let's go, let's go sort these billion tweets or these billion uh, uh, you know, messages or, or billion websites or whatever it is. You, that, that's not possible. So what you have to do is you have to capture the value system of that entity somehow in an AI. You have to make, you said, you know, there's no right answer for what the ethics of the AI are, but let's Kind of capture the um, uh, let, let's let's do our best to capture the values of some particular entity, which may have values you you as a as a human user agree with. You may have values you totally disagree with, but you're going to capture the values of that entity in an AI, and then you're going to use that AI to rank, select whatever the feed that you're going to get from this automated content selection system. So. You know, back in 2019, I did talk to folks at, at actually both Twitter and, and Facebook at that time about this and uh, understood a certain amount about their actual machine learning pipelines and so on, and tried to understand things about how you'd actually plug in this kind of setup into those pipelines. I think I understand a little bit about how to do that at a technical level and how to make it so that in the end, I, I think one would increase the total engagement of people on these platforms by having essentially extra work put in by these ranking providers, sort of providing something which would be uh, sort of optimized for a particular, uh, for you know, for the value system of a, of a particular entity, which then users can select for. So actually, I just was realizing just today, actually, 
I was realizing that there's a much simpler version of this that could be implemented for Twitter. And I just tweeted something about this actually, um, which is um, uh, just to have you know, the analog of an app store for curated feeds. And so you could say, you know, any organization, entity, whatever person, whatever, could put up a, a feed curation system. Now, it's not trivial to make a feed curation system. That's something, you know, if you just say, well, this feed curation system just picks tweets from my five friends, fine, that's something, but that's not the most exciting feed curation system. The more exciting ones are ones where you really can look at the whole sort of fire hose of, of material that's coming through Twitter and actually choose, uh, you know, the things and, and rank in some particular way. So you say, you know, you might say, I really don't want to see you know, I don't know, images that I wish I hadn't seen type thing, you know, cut that cut out those nasty, gory images and so on. And I just don't want that. Or I want to see this, uh, uh, this, I'm, I'm interested in, you know, science kinds of things, I want to see this, it, it's kind of like a, a newspaper in some sense, but it's, it's like something where the, the, um, it's sort of an AI selected thing that um, is, is set up to be based on the encapsulated values of some entity. Um, now, you know, people will say, oh, but that will make everybody be in that sort of echo chamber of they'll only hear about things that they wanted to hear about anyway. Well, you know, realistically, you know, welcome to our species, so to speak. That's what happens, you know, that's what happens anyway. I mean, some people like me would, would I think, I think, I would really like it, you know, the brand that says, we're going to give you a mixture of all kinds of things and we're going to show you all kinds of different points of view. You know, I'd probably sign up for that one. But that's me. And I'm not, I'm not, wouldn't claim that that's necessarily either the better thing to do or the thing that most people would choose to do. Um, but I think that the, um, uh, you know, and, and in fact, then people can give arguments for, hey, this is a really good thing to sign up for. And maybe people would, would, uh, would do things if they thought that was an important thing for the world to encourage people to, to sign up for those, see these different points of view. I, I, I mean, the things that I tend to see as a practical matter, I'm a little bit uh, disappointed often to see the lack of interest in other points of view and the, the absolute conviction that some particular point of view is the right thing, it's the right thing. And you know, everything else is, is, is fake news or, or whatever else. You know, I'm always a little disappointed by that. You know, I tend to take the point of view that, um, uh, you know, I suppose I'm more optimistic about people. And I, I kind of believe that people uh, should be more capable of thinking for themselves, so to speak. And if you give them sort of a little bit more information that, uh, that you know, it's, it's, it's respect for people is like, let them think for themselves, so to speak. But, you know, that, uh, that's a complicated issue in its own right, because I know, you know, in some controversial issues that have come up even the last few years, you know, I've been curious enough that I've gone and looked at the raw data myself to say, you know, did this really happen? Did it not happen? How is this, what's really going on? And, you know, I, let's assume that the raw data is correct and probably is in most cases. Uh, sometimes you can tell it's fake, but that's a different matter. You know, you can see when when the number of this thing was exactly, you know, one million or something. It's like, come on, that's not that couldn't possibly be right. But but um, uh, the but but you know, ignoring that, which is a small effect. You look at this data, and it's often, to me, as a I think not completely shabby, uh, you know, analyzer of data and kind of understander of models of things. It's it's surprisingly unobvious what's going on. 
and you often have to know a lot of stuff and, and I don't know the answers in most of these cases you have to know a lot of stuff that isn't just on its face in the data so to speak you have to know a lot of stuff about how that data really comes to be the way it is etc 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 so it isn't really it's it's not you know just say well give people the raw data then they can figure everything out that's also not going to work because it's just it's really hard to do that um so anyway that that's um uh all right let's see people commenting on this um uh Okay, this is an interesting comment from Parmenides. It's like voting for algorithms in elections. Algorithm personalities are biased, will be increasingly important. Yeah, yeah, that is an interesting point. I mean, let's imagine this is an interesting thought experiment. So, you know, democracy as it is today was sort of made possible by the by the arrival of literacy in the world. I mean, it's it's tough to, uh, you know, you have to know a certain amount to have it be plausible that you can vote in a meaningful way for things. And that's something that, you know, maybe 500 years ago became started to become widely possible as, you know, there was um, things like literacy spread. And so the question comes about in the modern world with, with computation the way it is and so on, you know, how do we think about processes of government? And, you know, in the blockchain world, there's lots of discussion about DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. People get a little bit confused about what those should be and what they really are. And, and uh, we could talk about that. But um, I think that the um, uh, the question, the sort of exercise, the, the almost philosophical, the political philosophy, the computational political philosophy exercise is given that we now have all this computational capability, how does that affect things the way that we think about things like government. Now, government at some level is like an algorithm. It's a machine. It's a, you know, you set up laws and then the government is the, is the implementer of those things. You set up a bunch of rules and then the government is sort of a machine for implementing those rules. It's very similar actually to what would happen if we actually wrote an algorithm for how we want you know, a country to run or something like that, except that right now it's implemented with people and legal contracts and documents and so on. And so the question is, you know, if we were at the point where instead of saying it will be, I don't know, let's say, uh, oh, who can we pick on? The FDA, let's say. You know the 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 or the um, I don't know we could pick any of these um, or FCC let's say you know instead of it being uh, you know the FCC with people deciding things about spectrum allocation and whatever else let's just invent uh, you know an AI that's going to do that and then and Parmenides is, is making this comment and then you could imagine okay uh, uh, let's instead of voting for and obviously one doesn't vote for people in specific government agencies, but, but um, uh, you know, sort of carrying that a little bit further, um, rather than saying, we're going to vote for so-and-so to be in charge of X, say, okay, we've got five algorithms that might be in charge, and maybe we can see the computational language code. You know, this is something, I think Wolfram language is kind of the only plausible way of representing those kinds of real world things in computational form. So you see a bunch of Wolfram language code and it's like, are you gonna vote for this lump of code? Are you gonna vote for that lump of code or that lump of code? Whichever, you know, you got five choices. One of them is going to run this particular aspect of, of, of your government and which one do you want to pick? Now, people might say, oh, but if you can see the code, people are gonna hack it in some way. Well, you know, look at the tax code, for example. You know, there's a, there's a giant industry 
that says, given the tax code as it is, and that's a code written in legalese, so to speak, let's find all the different ways that we can find loopholes and do this and optimize that and so on and so on and so on. That's already happening. There's, there's nothing particularly more, uh, more extreme about having a piece of actual computational language code where that's the way it runs. So yes, I think that's an interesting possibility is kind of vote for the algorithms. Now, uh, you know, I have to say that uh, in the in the operation of um, uh, that, there's a lot of sort of blindsiding that can happen when you say let's turn everything into this sort of computational language code, and um, uh, and then that's what's going to run things. And oh, there's something completely unexpected that happened, and it falls in the code in this particular way. Some machine learning classifier. You know, you think that this machine learning classifier is some. Um, is classifying grades of fruit or something. And suddenly one day, uh, oh, this is too horrible a thought, you know, one of these pieces of fruit, a little, a little maggot crawls out of the piece of fruit and the fruit classifier is like, oh, that's an amazing piece of fruit. That's a grade triple A piece of fruit because it wasn't trained on anything about maggots and the fruit or whatever, whatever it is. And then you've got something where a human would say, you just got that completely wrong. That's just totally crazy. Um, but you know, when you've when you've got this computational now, not every human might say that they might they might see, you know, it might be a, uh, you know, that case, it's sort of obvious from human sort of external common sense. But there are plenty of other cases where you might say, oh, you know, that piece of fruit has turned a nice purple color. I really like that color. And there's no problem with that. Oh, well, it actually happens to be poisonous. But, you know, that's something beyond sort of human perception to be able to tell. So in any case, I, I, I think this, this question of uh, sort of what you can run, you know, could you vote for AIs, so to speak, um, in a sense, you know, the, if you're in a democracy and it's like campaign promises, it's like if you're voting for an AI, you're kind of guaranteed it will do what it said it was going to do in the sense that, look, you voted for this piece of code, you know, you get what you voted for, so to speak, you might not like it, but that's what you what that's what you get. So it's sort of an interesting thought experiment to think through some of those kinds of things. I would say that one of the points about AI content selection, it's perhaps not, you know, that there are cases where you're voting for something that's going to decide, you know, whether to go to war, whether to do this, whether to make some very, very big decision. But when it's a question of, oh, you're going to see this piece of content versus that piece of content in this feed, it's not such a you know, a dramatic decision, but it's a decision where it has to be made many, many, many times. You know, it has to be made, you know, uh, let's say on a billion pieces of content per day or something like this. So it has to be a decision that's somewhat lightweight to make. And I think that's an optimal case. That's a, a good case for kind of the encapsulated AI decision maker, rather than let's use AI and let's, let's you know, there are plenty of science fiction movies that and stories that could go along these lines, you know, let's use the AI to decide who's going to win the war or not. Um, and, you know, we want, nobody will actually go to war. They'll just have the AI cogitate for a while and then say, you win, you lose type thing. You know, those high stakes decisions are very different from I'm, I'm, I'm going through a billion pieces of content. Do you want to show me that cat video or that cat video type thing? Um, so I think that's, I think, but I think that's a much better case for this kind of encapsulated AI ethics, so to speak, is this case where you're doing automated content selection uh, in, at a high rate, so to speak. So let's see. Um, yeah, so 
DZero is commenting that a master AI will basically mimic a human, a well-rounded human derived from all the information out there. See, the problem is that, like you say, okay, let's have ethic, let's have AIs behave ethically. Okay, so one sort of zeroth idea for how to teach them what is ethical behavior is just show them what the humans do. Okay, then a lot of humans are going to say, that's not right. There are lots of humans doing things that are really bad. You know, let's show them the perfect human. Okay, where's the perfect human? How do we decide what the perfect human is? Well, then you're in the same sort of regress of you got to decide what you want type thing. And there is no kind of, there's no ground truth. There's the ground truth of what humans actually do. But many people would say we can do better than what humans actually normally do. We want to be the better version of ourselves. But then it's kind of like a vector, the better vector. What direction does the better vector point in? Well, different people will have different opinions about the better vector. I mean, some people might say, oh, I don't know, you know, the, the, in a very extreme case, they might say, you know, we humans are doing so much damage and so, so many terrible things. The, the better vector is there just aren't any humans. Um, and, uh, you know, so that, that vector, it's kind of, that's the, you know, that vector, at least, you know, the answer, there aren't any humans, so there's nothing more to discuss. But most people will probably not think that that was the, the better vector. But um, uh, in any case, so I mean, that, that choice is a, is a, is a very uh, arbitrary choice. But now you might say, and I was curious about this at one point, let's say, let's curate the ethical systems of the world. And let's try to make sort of a, a feature space plot of all the different ethical you know, decisions in the world. So, so for example, a typical you know, type of thing is like one of these trolley problem type things. Um, you know, you're, you're deciding you've got, to, you know, um, three baby elephants versus one endangered bird. And you're deciding, you know, if the, if the train car is going to uh, kill one set of these things, which should it be, the baby elephants or the endangered bird? And then let's say, let's have 18 endangered, 18 baby elephants versus whatever. And you, and you, and you keep going with these kinds of questions which are very kind of uh, philosophical debate type questions um, that um, uh, until you're, you know, you're making that self-driving car or that autonomous weapon or something, and you actually have to burn that decision into code. Um, you know, it's funny, the, 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 the woman who um, invented that trolley problem thing was a philosophy professor in Oxford. Uh, my mother was also a philosophy professor in Oxford, and, and uh, that person was a friend of my mother's. So it's kind of funny to see this see this come up again um, as kind of a a thing where you know that was a, a philosopher's debate um, for a long time, and like in the end, the philosopher's debate has to turn into code, and that's the sort of the situation that we are um, that we are uh, sort of starting to be in. Um, and uh, uh, but but now this question of okay, let's. Let's curate the ethical systems in the world. And let's say, you know, in this ethical system, the baby elephants win in that ethical system, the endangered bird wins. Um, and uh, so then, then the question would be, you know, are there universals? Are there, um, and are there enough universals you could build something on that? Are there, um, are there kind of definite, okay, you've got these three personality types of ethical systems or something, you know, pick ABC type thing, you know, how does that work? What is the structure of ethics space, so to speak? 
Um, and I, I looked at this a bit. It's it's a it's a messy subject, and I I couldn't make much out of it. I mean, I, there are a few things like you know various versions of the golden rule. You know, do a, you know do to others as you expect people to do to you type thing. You know, that seems to be pretty common. I think there are things that are are very uh, sort of Darwinian in the sense in the sense that they're you know they're things which. Uh, if you want society to evolve in a prosperous way or a way that's going to continue well, these are things you probably want to have with the case. I mean, for example, if you have a principle that, um, uh, you know, that humans are a bad thing, you should wipe them all out. Well, then, you know, then that's the end of society. And that's not that's not good for natural selection, so to speak. But if you ask the question, uh, you know, is there a body of, of, of things about which everybody agrees? The answer is not really. Um, and is there a, and is it the case that, and people will also, I mean, the other place where it gets complicated is if you make some core ethical decision, the consequences of that ethical decision are kind of irreducibly hard to figure out. And so somebody says, well, I want this. They say, oh, I didn't realize that would mean this and this and this. And maybe, you know, there's a story of computational irreducibility and it's, it's impossible to tell. There will always be unexpected consequences and so on. So, so it gets complicated to do that. And I think in the end, and this relates again to this question of, you know, if you're a company that owns some giant automated content selection system, should you just say, I'm going to figure out the master algorithm and I'm just going to decide this for everybody. I just don't think that will work in a way that is, 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 uh, uh, makes sense. Um, and, you know, I think you have to admit that there are different people, there are different groups of people with different, with different value systems you know, where do the value systems come from? Well, it's a nature and nurture and other things story. We don't really know all of it. Uh, probably lots of nurture involved in that. Probably lots of you grew up in this kind of cultural setting. So that's what you're used to and so on. I and mean, it's it's similar to saying, you know, if, if we look at something like, I don't know, architecture, let's say, we look at um, uh, and we are shown some piece of architecture that's very familiar. It has, you know, a, a room that's rectangular. It's got, um, you know, things that look like they're sort of physically uh, work that way, kind of remain, reminds us of things in nature. It's pretty comfortable for us. Then you show us something which is really weird and it's got, you know, all these weird pentagonal pieces and weird angles and, and this kind of thing. And for many people, that's kind of like a disorientingly uncomfortable kind of situation. And I think the same thing is true for a lot of these kinds of cultural things. And it's a question of, well, there's an environment. We, we are you know, born into a certain world and you know, that, 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 that determines um, a lot of the way that we see things and what we're comfortable with. Now you could argue, well, we should be comfortable with other things. And, and maybe I might think that about some, some kinds of things that I see. But you know that there's a there's a question of where you where you where are the levers that move that, and it probably isn't in some company deciding sort of preemptively we're just going to tilt this thing in this particular way. So, uh, Parmenides, I noticed commenting the world is, is highly dynamic. So one AI might be ideal for a while, and then another will be better. Yeah, one of the things that one might imagine is let's imagine that you were burning in. You were saying, we're going to build AIs, they're going to be super powerful, they're going to run the world. Let's give them a constitution that is the way we want them to be. Okay, and so one feature of that constitution better be the AIs can't like change their own constitution because then, then, then we're not determining how we want the AIs to be. So you have the scary situation of, you know, we're in 2022, let's make the AI constitution and burn it in for all the rest of history. And, and that's sort of what 
in a sense, people, you know, in some of the, uh, for example, religious traditions, people are like, this was the thing, this is the book, so to speak, and that's the tradition, that's what we want to continue, uh, you know, into the infinite future. We're talking about, you know, with, with AIs, we'd be talking about the same kind of thing, except it would be much more extreme in the sense that this really is the core code that's running, that's determining the ethics for AIs in the future. I was curious, if you look at the actual constitutions of the world, there's a nice website that collects them, um, and you look at how they actually work and, and how changeable they are. And that there seem to be three categories of constitutions. Ones where basically it said a super democracy, uh, you know, a super majority is needed to change this constitution. I think the US has, has uh, some aspects of that in, in its constitution. You know, the, the, if enough people want it changed democratically in some sense, then let's change it. Case number one. Case number two, there is ultimately a supreme ruler determined in some way uh, uh, in some way or another, and ultimately the supreme ruler will decide. That's case number two. Case number three, that seemed to be true in, in some of the sort of Soviet-style uh, constitutions, which I, I found kind of amusing, was that there was a mechanism, and the mechanism involved a committee, we'll create a committee, to create a committee, to create a committee, to figure out whether to create a committee, to create a committee, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing is almost an infinite regress of committees, and it becomes kind of this sort of computationally undecidable thing, whether you can get a change or not, because it's all committees of committees of committees, so to speak. So th those seem to be the three cases. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think there is no sort of right answer to that again. Uh, and it's a difficult thing. You know, if you if you have the super powerful, it's kind of a, a, a type of thinking that theologians have done in the past. Of, you know, by the time you have the super powerful, all powerful AI that's running things and then you need to make a change in the all powerful, whatever, how does that possibly work? Um, because it's the all powerful thing. And so it has the power to prevent itself from being changed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think that through? Don't know the answer. Okay, let's see. Um, okay, so so comments from people from space time, I think, uh, about Twitter and ranking algorithms, just let users do it with sorting and filters. Yeah, I mean, up to a point, that's that's a very reasonable thing. I mean, I think it depends on whether you want to learn about things that you didn't already know about. This question of sorting and filters, I mean, that's essentially what we're talking about with uh, uh, you know, curated feed is defining those, those filters. And the question is, you can say, well, I'm gonna make a filter and I'm gonna write my own piece of orphan language code to write that filter. Or you're gonna say, look, I just trust that, you know, I don't know, pick a, um, uh, what's a good example? And so I'm, I'm hard pressed to think of uh, the, um, uh, an example, you know, uh, I, I don't know, some organization, um, you know, I just trust that that organization will be picking well and that they will have done a good job building the AI, building the filter effectively, which is, you know, you can say filter, that sounds simple. You can say AI, that sounds complicated, but in the end, they're very similar kinds of things um, to, to pick that content. Um, uh, people commenting here, it's funny to watch people getting excited about Twitter again. You know, when Twitter first was a thing, you know, it was like, how is this going to work? But then I, I realized it's a very interesting thing. It's really, if it is executed well, 
It is a thing that is very good for the world. It's useful. It's, um, uh, it's a way of, of really having a discussion um, in the world, which is something that is sort of now technologically possible. I mean, I suppose answering my own question a little bit about what does computation bring to, uh, and, and the modern sort of communication and computational world bring to questions of governance, so to speak. One of the things is you can have a discussion, you can have a conversation in a way that wasn't really true before. I mean, yes, you could have somebody write a letter to the editor to the newspaper that was gonna be published or somebody stand on a soapbox on a, on a street corner, but now there's a much more global ability to have a conversation if you don't block that conversation. If you block the conversation, it doesn't do any good. But that's the thing. And the question of how do you make that conversation work and how do you make that conversation kind of get to the point where it's not polarizing out and just sort of splitting out in, in absurd directions, or if it is splitting out in absurd directions, that the people who want that, what you think of as absurd direction, they're happily living in that absurd direction, and you know, and it doesn't bother other people. Now, of course, then, then you know, you you quickly regress into all kinds of things, which um, um, which it would be interesting to think through in more detail, uh, with kind of a clean slate of, of how to think about it. Of you know, what do you do with things that are uh, you know, with, with there's, there's a set of things that countries just decide are against their laws. Okay, that's up to the country. It's made its decision whether you agree with it or not. That's a different issue. But then you can you can put that away in, in one bucket. Then there's the question of things where people just think, oh, that's not the right thing to do, or whatever else. Or you or you want some dynamic where you try and make things, you know, this is where you get into trouble, where you start saying, well, actually, I want to make this dynamic where everybody's going to have more civil discourse and things like this. This is where you go in the slippery slope that ends in sort of, that ends in the sort of horrors of, of, um, uh, of all kinds of um, things. I was, I was rereading a little while ago that the, the um, um, it's sort of an appendix to George Orwell's 1984 um, that, uh, was looking at recently about um, the, the, what was it, the Ministry of, probably the Ministry of Information or something, or the, 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 the it might have been called the Anti-Disinformation or something Ministry, I don't know, but it wasn't called that because it wasn't at that time. But, but um, uh, you know, you, you quickly descend into a sort of morass of, of, uh, of it's not clear what to do um, and, uh, uh, you know, type, type things, I think. So anyway, I, I think that that, um, uh, this question of, of, you know, as soon as you have, I mean, the, the, the issue is, can you have a principle where the principle is to not have principles, so to speak, as in where, where you say, where by principle, I mean some particular cultural value. Um, can you set things up so that you can have a, a world, a Twitter world, at least, in which uh, you, you don't have to have made in which the, the, the number of global decisions that is made is as small as possible. Um, you know, I think that's the interesting question and that's sort of a mixture of practicality of machine learning algorithms together with practicality of sort of business issues about how do you motivate people to put effort into curation and so on. Um, the, uh, um, uh, it, it's um, uh, the, um, uh, you know, how, do, how does that all work? together with sort of more societal, philosophical kinds of questions about, about how to set that up. Uh, you know, these are interesting problems. And I, I think um, uh, if, um, if there's a real opportunity to think that through, because, you know, the way that Twitter evolved 
it's like it didn't really have a moment where it's like, okay, now it's time to think this through. Um, I think uh, perhaps now is that moment and, and that could be really interesting. Uh, okay, there's a question here. How can it be from Eggy? How can we avoid it that the world turns into an electronic panopticon when everything goes digital? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, in, you know, I think what you mean by that is sort of everybody sees everything and, um, uh, you know, and that, um, and, and what, what is the kind of the, the, the story of, um, uh, of a world where everybody sees everything and there's no kind of privacy of things and, and so on. I think it's a little bit of a, okay, so first point is that what services are centralized versus what services are more local and decentralized? And uh, by decentralized, I don't necessarily mean blockchain, which has its own kind of centralization, um, but in the sense that it's sort of everything is going on to one ledger and things like this. But um, uh, the, um, you know, the question really is, when it comes to, oh, um, something like um, a social network, let's say, um, and, you know, it's like, well, you know, somebody can come in and peek into the social network and see, oh, those people are doing this bad stuff on the social network. Now, you know, why is it even possible to do that? Well, it's possible to do that because the social network has been deeply centralized. There's a, you know, it is believed that sort of there's an economy of scale and there's an AI sort of a, a economy of effectiveness, so to speak, that says you should get everything together in one place and you don't want and, and it's also from a practical business point of view, that's something that allows one to sell ads centrally and you know, that's the way those businesses work and so on. I think that the, the thing that's interesting is that it's not obvious you have to do it that way. It could be the case that all social network stuff is somehow peer to peer, it's got, um, uh, you know, and, and everybody just has, you know, the information about their local social network information, plus some, some sort of, uh, you know, encrypted connections to other people and so on, and that there is no central there there. Um, and that's a very different picture. And I think that the thing that is interesting is different services have evolved in different ways, like the web, for example, has never been, you know, maybe it's becoming increasingly so, but it could have been the case that at the beginning of the web, it was just like there were, and, and there sort of were, uh, uh, you know, CompuServe and AOL and things like that, were, and GeoCities and so on, were sort of providing these centralized, you're on the web, you're on this server, this is a centralized thing. But in fact, most of the way that the web has evolved is very is a quite decentralized thing where everybody's operating their own server and there's a whole, you know, that there are all these issues about, you know, exactly how you sh everybody should route traffic. But in the first approximation, that's kind of working in, in a very uncentralized way. Uh, you know, so that's one example, very different from the way that social media evolved, where it's much more centralized, or the way that search evolved, again, much more centralized. And... Uh, you know, email, for example, evolved differently in different countries. Um, you know, in some in some places it was fairly uncentralized. In other places, more of there was a dominant company, and that was the servers that got used. So, you know, I think that that's the thing that makes for sort of the the panopticon story is partly about the centralization of of data and the centralization of systems. And I think that's a little bit of, a, of an accident of history in some of these cases. Now, once you're in a particular place with respect to that contingent history, it can be pretty difficult to get out of that place because, you know, by the time there's enough hundreds of billions of dollars 
that are riding on that particular business model, moving, you know, jumping to a different horse, so to speak, is a really difficult thing to achieve in the world. And it's something where that different horse, which might not have any kind of uh, economic oomph behind it to, to make that, to make such a transition occur. So I think, you know, that's why, uh, well, the, the um, uh, that's why it's interesting to see Elon making the choice to getting in, to get involved in Twitter, because that's a kind of a, a piece of the sort of the economic story that is, is, a, is, is rather factored away from uh, kind of the, the bulk, you know, everybody wants to make their, their, their dollar in this place or that place. Um, uh, basic, basic, let's see, some comments, people reminding me that, that the, um, the thing in 1984 is the Ministry of Truth, a lovely, a lovely name. Um, the, uh, I, I just wonder, you know, uh, again, I could expound at, at some length about what, you know, all the things that go wrong with a fact being a fact. Um, you know, one of the things that's an issue for us with Wolfram Alpha is that particularly insofar as people are using Wolfram Alpha as, a, as an oracle for things like blockchains and, and computational contracts, it's like, you know, did something happen in the world? That's the question of interest. And then we'll just write a contract that says it happened in the world if Wolfram Alpha says it happened. And so, you know, if, if it says it rained in a particular place, we'll assume that that's just the true situation. Well, as more and more gets built on that, you have more and more kind of chains of computational contracts that say, if this happens, then this happens, then this happens. Then, you know, one of the things that becomes important is if we suddenly say this happened in the world and, you know, our uh, sort of feed of facts, so to speak, says this happens in the world, that's going to start some giant domino thing. We better get it right. And that domino thing, it's kind of like a thermodynamic process. You're never going to be able to undomino the dominoes, so to speak. Once you say this happened, chain of consequences, sort of expanding chain of consequences, you'll never be able to roll it back. So you're kind of forced to be, you know, you're forced to do the best you can to get it right. So the case, a typical case that's, that's really complicated is, you know, who won election X? Okay, you would think that's straightforward. There's rules, there's in different countries, in different places, there's, you know, the, this decision, that decision, you know, you know, this is a well-defined thing. Now, remember also, you don't want to wait too long to come up with a conclusion, because it better not be the case that all these computational contracts that depend on who won this or that election are hanging on, you know, they're all hanging up. There's this giant blocking that's happening in the computational contract infrastructure of the world because all these contracts depend on this thing, but we don't know that thing yet. I mean, from a sort of physics point of view, we can talk about it in terms of causal graphs and so on. There's this event that didn't happen yet. And so all of the, all of the future light cone of that event, sorry, that's a, that's, that comes from me spending too much time in physics. Um, you know, all of the sort of future causality from that event can't happen yet because we haven't determined whether that event happened. So then the question is, how do you actually do it? And, you know, we haven't had to implement this yet because there hasn't been enough kind of hanging on those threads yet. But I was trying to figure out, you know, what would we actually do if, you know, if there's a, if, for example, we know perfectly well that we, we, we move the, the lever this way or that way, there's, you know, $100 million on each of the sides of the lever, so to speak. Um, and, you know, how do we do it? You know, how do we make that decision? Now, obviously, people have those decisions that they make in, in terms of, I don't know, ratings agencies and all kinds of other things. 
um, where where they're where they're corporately making decisions that that have those kinds of uh, that move levers like that. But um, it's like, what are we going to do when it's an external fact? Um, you know, how are we going to deal with this? And it's like, uh, you know, I, I I think the best I've been able to come up with is uh, it's it's sort of a a weird kind of human system. Let's say we have a hundred data curators out around the world. So random collection of hundred people, but well, not random, a, a, a collection of hundred trained data curators, you know, similar to what we have today in, in the Wolfram Alpha, uh, in our Wolfram Alpha organization. Um, but, um, and then, uh, although you probably want something where it's not people with a particular organization that they, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that's complicated in its own right. But then basically you say, okay, some issue comes up and it's like, we got to decide in the next 15 minutes, what are we going to do with this? Or decide that we, we have to punt and we can't decide this in this 15 minute period. Okay, pick five of these curators at random. And then you say, okay, you've got 15 minutes to decide. We're going to use the equivalent of, you know, uh, exam proctoring software. And, you know, you can even live stream your screen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now you've got to figure out in 15 minutes, what do you think is true about this, about this, uh, this supposed fact? And, you know, my theory about that is that we can't guarantee to quotes always get it right. In other words, it says, you know, so-and-so won the election, somebody says, and then, well, actually, you know, there's a parade of tanks, you know, just, you know, uh, that, are, that are approaching the, the um, whatever it is, you know, the, 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 the parliament square or something, who are all saying, no, 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 that's not true. And we're going to blow the whole thing up, and you know, it, it all gets very complicated. And then it's like, well, did they really? Or you know, there's some whole challenge through some chain of legal, uh, you know, legal challenges and so on. It's like, did they really do that or not? So I think, to you know, the thing one has to do, and my, my criterion for figuring this out is, uh, you know, we can at least get to the point where we might be wrong, but at least we're not crooked, so to speak that there is not, nothing that is influencing beyond just like these are just people and in the end it's going to come down to people trying to make decisions and they will try and make decisions to their best of their ability. They may fail to get it right, but they were not influenced in some way by some you know, larger force or, or, or whatever in doing that. And I think that's that sort of thing when we try to achieve that. Um, let's see. Uh, Okay, quite a comment here from Space Time um, saying, I do think the marketplace approach isn't a bad option, but it seems like the optimal way to do that is just reopen the Twitter API and let different people create clients. Yeah, could very well be. I mean, that seems like a, um, uh, I think the only issue is, I kind of think that the more Twitter itself can provide a, uh, an environment, app store, tooling, et cetera, to create those clients, the more one's going to be in a position. See, I think one wants organizations that are mostly about their value system and not mostly about their machine learning prowess, for example, to be capable of creating meaningful clients, so to speak, uh, meaningful curated feeds. And, and so I think it's important to, to sort of build centrally enough of a platform that it's possible to do that. 
So you don't have to be, you know, somebody capable of managing, you know, billions of tweets flowing through and managing machine learning pipelines and, and complicated distributed computing infrastructure and so on. If you can get it to the point where you have tooling that lets you just make the value judgments um, in, in a way that, so, you know, you just can, you know, tweak the AI and then the actual implementation of the AI is done in a way that is, you know, making, having access to sort of all of the distributed computing, all of the high speed stuff and so on, um, all of the uh, training data, all that kind of thing that's needed. So that, that's, that's, I think, you know, it's certainly a possible step to just sort of reopen the API, but I think it becomes more realistic and it, it allows the population of, of organizations that can provide curation to be much broader in a much more interesting way if you've provided a, a strong platform and tooling for that. Um, Parmenides comments, uh, uh, I think in reference to a particular thing I said, you end up with a social network as good as the people in the network. I don't think you can elevate people by moderating what they're allowed to say. Uh, I have to say, I, I personally, my prejudice is that you're absolutely right about that. Um, and that uh, uh, sort of the, the concept that you have a situation where the only way to keep the ship stable is by kind of shutting down discourse about this or that thing. That seems wrong to me. I mean, maybe that's just a prejudice on my part from the fact that, um, you know, I'm a person who likes to think about things and, and likes to understand things and uh, uh, thinks that, that um, um, the, uh, um, so, uh, you know, that, that, you know, that you may take that as sort of a, my prejudice, um, the, uh, um, but, uh, uh, yeah, that would be what I would, would say. Um, let's see, Warman comments. I don't think you can avoid bias, it's just inherent to language and, and minimally complex knowledge units. Bias should be a feature more than something to avoid. It's more useful to understand bias than to attempt to neutralize it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think this is the point of, you know, you've got to have these different sort of value systems and sort of different islands, towers of value, so of values, um, and they represent, you know, uh, yeah, you, you can't, in the end, if, if okay, you're right to say, I think that, it, that it's inherent to language. When we say a chair, we are biased to not think about the, um, what would be an example. We're not, we're not thinking about the two-legged self-maintaining self, uh, self you know, thing that is really intended for animals with tails. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, um, um, uh, you know, in, whenever we have a word for a thing, for example, we are picking a particular class of things we're imagining that that word connotes. And there will necessarily be what you could think of as bias in we're ignoring the chairs for octopuses, for example. We are biased against chairs for octopuses because that's not what our term chair usually means to us. And, and yes, I think that that's, you know, that's a typical kind of thing. I mean, I think the other thing that can happen is, you know, there is the way the world is, and there's the way you want the world to be, given your particular prejudices, value system, whatever else. And then 
there's the question which people will argue about of is there a, a, a vector towards the better world? And I claim there is no such thing. That is simply a, a you know, that's a, that's a, that's sort of a fiction that there's a, an ultimate vector towards a better world. Um, I mean, if we look at, at human history, for example, we might say, you know, has the arrow of time of human history led us to a better world? People probably mostly say no. Um, you know, in some ways it's a better world. Clearly many things, I would say on average, if I were to, you know, rate it for myself, you know, the world now versus the world a thousand years ago, uh, today is just unbelievably much better. You know, I certainly wouldn't be around and alive and kicking with high probability at the ancient age I'm at and, you know, able to spend a bunch of my time thinking about, you know, abstract science and all this kind of thing. And, you know, uh, eating pieces of chocolate and all that kind of thing, you know, wouldn't be likely a thousand years ago. I get to have a much more, to me, interesting and fulfilled life today than, than a thousand years ago. But nevertheless, that's a, that's sort of a, you know, this, this sort of people might say, I think people wouldn't say it's always becoming a better world. Um, but then, you know, this question of, well, what direction makes it better? I mean, I, I remember people saying, look at this, um, what was it? The Bonobos, I think it was the 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 um, uh, uh, primates, where people said, "Look, they have a better society than human society. They've got all these good things going on, which we think sound really good." And and I remember wondering to myself, "I wonder what these creatures eat." And and it turns out, of course, they're carnivorous, and they have all kinds of things that happen in that um, in in the pursuit of food. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's uh, what seems like a better world isn't always a better world. I mean, it's somehow it's also uh, you know, I think the other thing that could happen is you end up with a, a um, uh, 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 in a sense, if, if everything is, is completely, uh, you know, what could go on about this? I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm only going to end up expressing my prejudices about, um, uh, about the world, so to speak, by, but I think the, the main sort of meta prejudice is that there are always going to be prejudices and that's kind of, um, uh, you know, that, that's a, a necessary thing and that that's, um, uh, that, that almost without that, um, uh, you know, things like what do we mean by chair? Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, you have to have kind of that, the, the, the built in, the former, the existing knowledge, the existing view of what that could possibly mean in order for even communication to work. All right, well, I should probably wrap up soon. Um, and uh, uh, wasn't planning to talk about Twitter today, but but um, uh, that was interesting. Um, um, let's see if there's anything I can answer quickly here. This question from Architect. What tools do you use to get refocused and how do you set yourself up for more creative exploratory activities? You know, this question about getting refocused, I have, I've still been tweaking that. So for example, when I write things, and I write quite a lot, you might even argue too much, too long uh, kinds of posts that I put out and things like this. But when I'm writing those, one of the questions is, I write up to certain points, and then I'm gonna start again, I'm gonna pick it up again the next day, let's say. What is the optimal way in which to set it up so that I can best pick it up again? And I would say that when I, have some section that I'm writing and I haven't quite finished that section. Sometimes I think, oh, that'll be a good place to pick it up and I've got momentum there. That's not right, at least not for me, because that momentum is there in that moment in my state of mind as I'm writing it, 
and then I can continue it. But if I have to re recreate that momentum, it doesn't work at all. And I end up with a, with a much worse situation. So I think one of the things I found that for writing things, at least that is kind of useful sometimes, um, is, you know, if I've got a reason to reread what I've written, you know, I'm adding links, I'm proofreading it, I'm doing something like that, so up to the point where I get to, sometimes I'm like, I can't read this, it's, I wrote it, it's, it's boring for me to read this, but if I can make myself reread it, that's a pretty good way of generating momentum for me to, to get restarted and say, okay, now I understand, okay, the obvious next thing to say is blah. So that's a, that's a thing that I've, I've found useful there. I would say that that whenever, okay, another form of focusing for me is just start writing stuff down. Just, you know, you're, you're trying to think about something, start making concrete notes about what you're thinking about. You know, for me, it's kind of externalizing kind of what I'm thinking about. Really, it helps me to focus the ideas. And also once I've, what for me, once I've, I've, I've thought about something, it's like, like one of these principles of if, you know, if you're worried about falling asleep and you're thinking about something and, uh, you know, just write it down um, because then you can let it go and you'll remember it the next day if you, if you need to remember it. But otherwise you're kind of looping, trying to remember that thing. I think it's the same thing often as I'm thinking about stuff. If I can just write it down, then it's like, okay, move on to the next thought type thing, rather than looping on that and being held back by that. Um, well, anyway, so that's that's at least some, some thought about refocusing. And um, talking of refocusing, I think I need to go. And um, I'm actually about to do my fourth live stream of the day, my gosh. Um, this is the season when we are uh, working towards a new version of, of our system, Wolfram Language. Um, and uh, working towards 13.1. And um, this is my season of design reviews for 13.1. And I have another one coming up in just a few minutes here, um, which uh, I'll be live streaming again. So you can, you can test my hypothesis that I'm okay at context switching between one kind of activity and another by seeing whether I can um, just jump right in to the discussion I think we're talking about um, uh, geometry and graphs and uh, new functionality for that there. But um, anyway, th thanks for um, joining me here. And, and actually, for people who have, who have thoughts about, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm starting to um, uh, think a bit about uh, uh, Twitterology and so on. And so um, uh, um, I'd be interested to hear thoughts about that. For me, it's at this point just kind of a, an interesting intellectual exercise, let's say, um, but uh, uh, I think it's a, it's it's one that um, if one can surface good ideas, it's a good thing. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q and A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.